and expectation because the long-awaited Messiah had finally arrived. But if you look past the palm branches and past the crowds, past the party-like atmosphere, not everything was well in Jerusalem. The Pharisees were critical. The temple was corrupted. The religious leaders were plotting. And Jesus wept. And then seven days after Palm Sunday, today, we find ourselves, in the words of theologian Willie Nelson, on the road again. But a great deal has changed between our passage in Luke 19 last week and our passage in Luke 24 today. Because today, the donkey is back in the stable. The cloaks have been picked up. The crowds have gone home, and the streets outside of Jerusalem are eerily quiet. So what exactly happened between Palm Sunday, a week ago, and today? And why is it that some 2,000 years later, Christians all over the world, at risk of life and limb, are getting together and still talking about it, and still singing about it? So open your Bibles to Luke chapter 24, Verse 13, feel free to use the Bibles here if you didn't bring one and take one home if you don't own one. But before we go further, let's pray together as a church. Father, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for the good news that we announce not just today, but that we announce every single week. Uh, But Father, at the same time, It's tempting to look at this Sunday as just another Sunday, and in some ways it is. We're here every single Sunday. We sing every single Sunday. We pray every single Sunday. We open your word every single Sunday, and yet, at the same time, this Sunday is a little bit different. It's such a significant day, and I pray that those of us gathered here this morning, the people who are here every week and the people who are rarely here or are here for the first time, I pray that we would all recognize the significance of this day and glorify you for it. So, Father, be with us as we read from your word today. Remind us of the good news upon which everything that we value, everything in this life and in the next life that matters, ultimately revolves around the events of this weekend and the events of this day. We love you. We worship you. We thank you for your son, our risen Lord, Jesus Christ. Amen. We'll start in Luke chapter 24, verse 13. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles from Jerusalem, and they were talking with each other about all these things that had happened. So on the first Easter Sunday, we find two men walking on the road. And they're leaving Jerusalem on their way to Emmaus, and they're discussing what truly was a wild few days in Jerusalem. For better or for worse, this is a Passover week that they would never forget. So the question is, what's so memorable about this week? What were they talking about? Well, we already saw what happened on Sunday. That was Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. That's when he wept over the city. That's when he cleansed the temple. But in the days following, there was much, much more. Between Monday and Wednesday, Jesus was repeatedly in confrontation with the religious leaders. 
And he gave them his sharpest words and his most thorough condemnations to date. He predicted the destruction of Jerusalem some 40 years later and his eventual return. He was anointed by a sinful woman with expensive perfume, which he said was in preparation for his death. But then Thursday is where the tension truly rose. Because that's the night that Jesus shared the Passover meal with his disciples in the upper room and predicted his betrayal. He prays in the Garden of Gethsemane and is arrested by Roman soldiers. He's dragged before the religious leaders, before Herod, before Pilate, and he makes no attempt to defend himself against false accusations. And by the time Friday morning rolls around, the people elect to spare Barabbas, a notorious murderer, rather than Jesus. Jesus is condemned to death, mocked, flogged, spit upon, and marched out of Jerusalem to a place called Golgotha. When he gets there, he's stripped of his clothes, sarcastically worshipped as king of the Jews, and crucified. Nails the size of railroad spikes driven through his wrists and his feet. And when Jesus dies, the sky is dark, the earth shakes, the curtain in the temple is torn in two from top to bottom. He's buried in a tomb of a stranger, a tomb that's never been used. And he remains there on a very, very, very quiet Saturday. So these two men, on that first Easter Sunday, walking on that lonely road to Emmaus, clearly have a lot to talk about, don't they? And they might think that they already have enough information to try and process from everything that we've just described when they hear something else. They hear that several female disciples claim that the tomb was empty when they stopped by that morning. They even say that angels appeared to them and announced that Jesus is alive. But like any first century man knows, you can't trust women, especially in a situation like this. They've been traumatized by the events of the past few days. Maybe they were hallucinating. Perhaps they're just being hysterical. Clearly, these women just couldn't handle the hard truth that Jesus wasn't the Messiah they all hoped he was. Because after all, Messiahs don't die. Everybody knows that, right? Well, pick up in verse 15. While they were walking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. But their eyes were kept from recognizing him. And Jesus said to them, What is this conversation that you were holding with each other as you walk? And they stood still, looking sad. Then one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, Are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened there in these days? And Jesus said to them, What things? And they said to him, Concerning Jesus of Nazareth, A man who was a prophet, mighty in deed and word before God and all the people. And how our chief priests and rulers delivered him up to be condemned to death and crucified him. But we had hoped that he was the one to redeem Israel. Yes, and besides all this, it is now the third day since these things happened. Moreover, some women of our company amazed us. 
They were at the tomb early in the morning, and when they did not find his body, they came back saying that they had even seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but him they did not see. And he said to them, O foolish ones, slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself. So they drew near to the village to which they were going. He acted as if he were going farther, but they urged him strongly, saying, Stay with us, for it is toward evening, and the day is now far spent. So he went in to stay with them. When he was at table with them, he took the bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. They said to each other, Did not our hearts burn within us while he talked to us on the road, while he opened to us the scriptures? And they rose that same hour and returned to Jerusalem. And they found the eleven and those who were with them gathered together, saying, The Lord has risen indeed and has appeared to Simon. Then they told what had happened on the road, and how he was known to them in the breaking of the bread. So as these two men make their way to Emmaus, a stranger joins them, and he's curious what the fuss is all about. Now the two men are amazed that this man could possibly be so clueless. I mean, where has he been the past three days? Living under a rock? Well, actually, kind of, sort of. But of course, the two travelers don't know that yet. So they tell the man the story. Their story is one of false hopes, unfulfilled expectations, and shattered dreams. I mean, no wonder they looked so sad. The man that they had thought was the Messiah, the man they trusted, the man they believed in, the man they followed, the man they sacrificed for, the man they worshipped, wasn't up for the task. He may have been a prophet, mighty in deed and word, I'm sure he was a good friend and a powerful teacher and a worker of miracles. But when it comes to his biggest claim about himself, he was a fraud. Now, they might hold on to some fond memories about Jesus of Nazareth. But they will ultimately look back at his tragic death with disappointment. They will look back and wonder what might have been. They may even find themselves doubting that the Messiah will ever come at all, because if it wasn't Jesus, then maybe it's been a lie the whole time. But then after hearing all this, the stranger, who we know is the risen Christ, the Messiah, far more than just a prophet, but the Son of God who could not be held by death itself, he gives these two men an education. He turns to the Old Testament to show them that His suffering and his death was not a series of bad breaks. It wasn't unfortunate coincidences. It wasn't broken promises. Rather, his suffering and his death were the God-ordained road by which the Christ, the Messiah, would enter into his glory and ultimately save sinners. Now, which Old Testament passages would Jesus have turned to in this passage? The truth is, we don't know for sure, because Luke doesn't tell us. 
But maybe he went back to Genesis 3.15, when God told the serpent that one of Eve's offspring would bruise his head, even though the serpent would bruise his heel. Maybe he mentioned Psalm 16.10, when David says that God would not let his Holy One see corruption. Maybe he stops in Isaiah 53, where God's suffering servant, the one pierced for the transgressions of others, crushed for their sins, bearing their iniquities, even though he himself was innocent and righteous, that man is ultimately blessed. Maybe he reminds them of Jonah, the prophet stuck in the belly of the fish for three days, but ultimately delivered. We don't know for sure. But by the time this theologically brilliant, but shockingly out of touch with current events stranger, is done speaking, they're in Emmaus. It's time to eat dinner. And when the stranger breaks bread with them, the eyes of these two men are opened. They recognize that the man they've been walking with, the man they've been speaking with this whole time, is none other than Jesus Christ risen from the dead. So understandably, they do a 180. They change directions. They rush back to Jerusalem, presumably under the cover of night, and they share the good news. They share the good news that those women earlier in the day weren't mistaken. They weren't hysterical. They weren't guilty of wishful thinking. Those women were right. The tomb really was empty. Angels really did announce it. Jesus really is alive. He really is risen. And so the reason that Christians like us gather together every spring to celebrate Easter is because we too believe the testimony of those women at the tomb. We believe the testimony of those two men who saw the risen Christ on that dusty road. We believe the testimony of the apostles, the church fathers, the martyrs, and countless Christians across time, space, nation, and language who have proclaimed that Jesus is alive over and over and over again. We believe in the historical validity of Jesus' resurrection just as much as we believe in the fall of Rome. The delivery of the Gettysburg Address, the sinking of the Titanic, the violence of World War II, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, and the moon landing. Well, maybe not that last one. Some of us. But the point is that the resurrection of Jesus is just as real as the clothes on your backs, the air in your lungs, and the blood in your veins. And that's why we keep coming together on Easter. And every other Sunday throughout the year. That's why we keep looking back at this story time and time and time again. That's why we follow him. That's why we worship him. That's why we love him. Because he really is who he said he is. He really did what he said he would do. And he really is the Savior. Not just of Israel, but of the whole world. And like those two men on that road to Emmaus, knowing the risen Christ deeply changes us. It causes us to do a 180, to change directions. It summons us to announce all who would hear that Jesus is alive. Now, it's worth noting that these two men, 
They didn't recognize the risen Christ on their own. And neither do we. Even the women at the tomb had a hard time believing their eyes. In John's gospel, Mary Magdalene doesn't recognize the risen Christ until he says her name. These men on the road to Emmaus don't recognize Jesus until he stooped down and shared a meal with them. Thomas didn't believe Jesus until he got to touch his scars. The point is that as sinners, we need all the help we can get recognizing the risen Christ. The Bible often describes us as blind. But if our God can raise the dead, then he has no problem helping blind sinners see. God can reveal himself to us in different ways and different times. In the case of these two men on the road to Emmaus, he does it through a meal. He does it through scripture being opened. And thankfully, God has graciously proven all too willing to reveal himself to sinners over and over again. To give sight to the blind in order that we might see his glory, recognize his son, and announce the good news that Jesus is risen. It's also worth remembering that everything, everything revolves around the historical event of Jesus' crucifixion and resurrection. Like we read in this passage, Moses and the prophets pointed forward to Jesus. We Christians are constantly pointing people's eyes back to Jesus. That's because we believe that it is the single most important event that ever has occurred or ever will occur. And we believe it so much that we have staked our lives upon it, both this life and the next. In yesterday's New York Times, there was an interview with the Reverend Serene Jones, the president of Union Theological Seminary in New York City. But even as a seminary president and minister, Mrs. Jones is not convinced that Jesus actually rose from the dead. She even suggests that many Christians are too obsessed with the resurrection. So she argues that while the resurrection probably didn't happen, Christianity can still teach us that the ultimate love in our lives cannot be crucified and killed, and that love is stronger than life or death. Now, with all due respect to Mrs. Jones, who may be a gifted scholar and a good leader and a kind person, all those things, that's not Christianity. That is not the faith that we profess. If anything, the story of a charismatic Jewish teacher who had the audacity to claim that he would rise from the dead but then didn't, and yet somehow still managed to dupe generations of followers to believe that he was the Son of God to the point of dying for him, even though he's still dead. The idea that this teacher, this man, this leader could somehow teach us that love is stronger than life or death, even though he himself is still dead? That's not Christianity. That's more like the plot of a really bad Disney movie. As we mentioned at our prayer night on Thursday, we read 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul argues that if the resurrection of Jesus didn't happen, then Christians are of most people to be pitied. We are pathetic if this resurrection didn't occur. 
But again, we believe it did. We thank God it did. We believe that everything revolves around it. Life and death, heaven and hell, the past, the present, the future, and all eternity revolve around that empty tomb. And that's why we still gather together. That's why we still celebrate it. And of course, when you meet the risen Christ, you will celebrate it too. In fact, you'll never be the same. When sinners like us meet the crucified and resurrected Son of God, we are moved from enemies of God to friends of God. We're no longer orphans, but sons and daughters. We're not lost, but found. We're no longer blind, but see. We are not condemned, but forgiven. We are no longer estranged, but reconciled. We are not slaves to sin. Instead, we are guided by the Holy Spirit. And we no longer look forward to punishment with anxiety and fear. We look forward to the presence of God. We look forward to salvation. In life, we have an identity, a calling, and a joy that we simply wouldn't have otherwise. The ways that we understand our hardships, our sufferings, is forever changed when we meet the risen Christ. And even in the face of death, we have hope. Those Christians who were slaughtered in Sri Lanka have hope. They have the same hope as the 90-year-old Christian who will die peacefully in their bed. As Christians, we can face death with confidence. We know that it will one day come for us. The funeral home business, the casket business, they're still booming. But we know that death doesn't have the final say. It didn't have the final say for Christ, and it won't have the final say for us. Now, there's one more famous story of the risen Christ meeting someone on a road, and that is Acts chapter 9, where he meets a man named Saul on the road to Damascus. Saul is an up-and-coming Pharisee, zealous in his devotion to God's law, and unyielding in his persecution of Christians. And like those two men on the road to Emmaus, Saul doesn't recognize Jesus at first. But then when Jesus reveals himself to him, Saul realizes that the scriptures he knew so well and loved so much, and that everything else in the cosmos all point to this man. They all revolve around this man, the Son of God who died and rose. And Saul leaves that road a very, very different man. Saul leaves that road and devotes his life to serving, serving Christ. Saul leaves that road and writes 1 Corinthians 15, the passage about how Christians are to be most pitied if Christ did not rise from the dead. So the question this morning is this. Have you met the risen Christ? What road are you on? Maybe you're on a road like those two men going to Emmaus. Disaffected, without hope, confused, looking for answers, not sure what comes next. Maybe you feel as though God has let you down in the past. You've been hurt. Maybe you've given up. Or maybe you're more on a road like the one to Damascus. You're pretty confident of things. 
And in fact, you're opposed to the things of God, opposed to the things of Christ. You simply don't buy it. And you might only be here because you were dragged by a friend or a family member and you want to avoid any potential argument over the lunch table. But whichever road you took to get here, you are invited to meet the risen Christ today. And if you're already a believer, you've already met the risen Christ, you celebrate Easter, you've placed your life in his hands. Well, keep going on that road of faithfulness. Because the resurrection of Christ gives you hope along the way. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, where Paul says, hey, if Christ wasn't raised, then we are pathetic. He then goes on to say, but Christ has been raised, and we will be raised too. He ends that chapter by saying, therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast and movable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. Because Christ rose from the dead. We know that our obedience is not in vain. We know that our faith is not in vain. We know that our sufferings, our losses, our hardships, none of them are in vain. We have hope in this life and we have hope in the next. And that hope is as sure as the tomb is empty. So again, we Christians believe that what happened between Palm Sunday and Easter Sunday, the death and resurrection of Jesus... Those things are as real as the sky above us and the ground below us. And that's why we continue to celebrate it. That's why we continue to announce it. That's why we continue to sing it and pray about it and celebrate it. So may our lives bear witness to our belief in a God who can save sinners. Because if our God can raise the dead, then saving sinners should be no problem. And may our conviction that Christ really has lived, really has died, and really has risen spur us on to obedience, spur us on to worship, spur us on to joy and faithfulness until the day when he really will return. Knowing that none of this, none of what we're doing here this morning, none of the life that God has called you to is in vain because the tomb is empty and he is risen. Let's pray. Father, again, thank you for today. Thank you for this time that we have together. Thank you for this reminder that we get not just once a year, but really every single time we open your word, where all of scripture ultimately points to your son, Jesus Christ. Thank you for reminding us of this thing that we've probably heard a lot of times We probably think we know it pretty well. We probably think we have a pretty good grasp of the Easter story. But again, I pray that we would not cease to be in awe of it. I pray that as we read this text about your son, Jesus Christ, rising from the dead, we would have confidence that you too can raise us from the dead today. You can raise us from death and sin into life and holiness and righteousness. And so, Father, we ask you to do that in us today. Do it continually in us through the Holy Spirit. And, Father, for those who don't believe, I pray that you would do it for the first time this morning. And again, we love you, we worship you, we honor you, because your Son is worthy of our worship. He's worthy of our honor. 
He's worthy of our praise. He's worthy of our loyalty. And so, Father, we give it to him. We give it to you. And we look forward to the day when we, too, will rise and be in your presence. We ask this all in Christ's name. Amen.